Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Walkaluk, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this conscientious little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Andy Novak. Now, if you know Andy like I know Andy, then you're going to know him as that guy that you'd seen at the recycling center for years. Well, we're going to get to hear Andy discuss that in greater detail, along with many other things. We're going to get to hear Andy talk about his involvement with the group, the Pender Solar Initiative 2020. We'll get to hear him speak about building his combination straw bale and cob house on his property on the island. Andy will also discuss growing up in Germany, and he'll talk about he and his wife Mary's love of gardening. All that and a lot more in this episode, which I'm excited to bring to you. And I'm also excited to tell you that as of just a few days ago, I found out through the Ptarmigan Arts Society that they are going to help to sponsor this show. For those of you who don't know, I've been doing this strictly on my own from the beginning, and it's something I've really loved doing and I plan to do more. And it's really nice to be given some help for my time and my efforts in doing this. And thank you to Ptarmigan. So that's it for the intro. We'll see you guys on the other side. And without further ado, here is my interview with Andy Novak. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. We're here on a Wednesday evening. It's uh, We've got some nice ambient lighting going on here. It's dark outside, and here we are, ready to start our interview. How was, how was your day today? Oh, great day on Pender Island. The sun was shining, and spent lots of time outside where I like to be. Okay, awesome. All right, well, we're going to find out more why you like to be so much outside, but... <laughs> Before we get to that, we're going to get to the traditional first question, which I always ask everybody, and that is, what brought you to Pender Island? Well, I was living on Vancouver Island, the big island in Sydney, and um, felt like I needed a change. I wanted a change to live somewhere more rural, and so we started looking around for property to buy, and we came across Pender Island, and I came over once to check it out and people told me you need to go to magic lake and i said magic lake no i don't want to go into that big subdivision and they said well with your budget that's where you need to go so i went into magic lake and looked at a few lots and it wasn't the subdivision i imagined because there were trees everywhere and um to make a long story short we bought a lot in Magic Lake on Capstan Lane, right next to the park. And a year later, we moved to Pender Island. So that's how I got here. And um, it was a fairly conscious thing. We, we actually were able to track down the community plan before we made the decision to come here and read through the community plan and thought, wow, this sounds like a really neat community. And we decided to give it a try. What was in the uh, community plan that you remember? Well, just sort of, you know, a vision of what people felt they wanted for this island, how it would, you know, maybe develop or what 
the values were and what they wanted to preserve and it just it was a neat document you know which i'd never ever read anything like that before and um it just appealed to to me and so we made we took the plunge and came to pender island on new year's day 1986 wow new year's day new year's day oh a new year's resolution i'm gonna change where i'm living and move to a gulf island yeah yeah and the funny thing was we loaded up our u-haul van the night before new year's eve and i had just was able to pull that roll what do they call them those doors that roll down at the back of a u-haul and closed it with all our belongings in there except for a mattress on the living room floor which we were going to spend the last night on and the phone rings and it was the landlord on pender island telling me that the house we were going to move in had just sold <laughs> But he had a solution for us, so we spent three weeks in a different place and then moved into a different house from, you know, this this person had two houses. So we rented his other house, the one that wasn't going to sell. So that's how we arrived on Pender Island. Okay. And so when you first moved to the island, in terms of just uprooting your life a little bit and moving to the Gulf Islands, what were you doing for work when you first came here, Andy? Well, when I first came to Pender... I started off as a handyman, essentially. I had some building experience, but, you know, very, fairly little. But I liked working with my hands. I liked working outside. So I just sort of offered my services um, as a handyman, you know, pretty much willing to do whatever, a lot of gardening and yard work and a little bit of simple sort of construction jobs. And so that's how I started off. And did that for probably, I can't remember the timelines, but, you know, it sort of went from yard work more and more into construction as I sort of, you know, found my feet on the island. And contrary to popular belief of people in Victoria and Sydney who thought I was crazy to move to a golf island because I was unemployed when I was in Victoria in Sydney, there was lots of work here, as long as you weren't too picky about your work. And if I told people I would come to work at 8 in the morning or 9 in the morning, I was there at 8 or 9, and people went, what are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) You're on time. (laughs) That doesn't happen around here. Come in and have a coffee. And I would say, I just had my coffee at home. I'm here to work. So very quickly, I was able to sort of establish a clientele if you want you know in the yard work and i had more work than i could possibly do very quickly you know wow but you know it was not the most fulfilling in a career type sense you know so that's why i eventually transitioned into more construction and then then after a few years i kind of transitioned out of construction when the recycling depot took off Okay. Interesting. You know, I didn't know that you were involved in working in construction, but so this would be in the later 80s, early 90s that you got into it? Yeah. Yeah. And I was basically working on my own, you know, just sort of keep it small, keep it simple, just do little renovations or build stairs or a deck and that kind of, you know, I wasn't building whole houses or anything. So, except my own house. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, you mentioned recycling, so we're gonna we're gonna come back to building your own house because I want to hear that story for sure. But you said that uh, recycling started up and you got involved, and I think that's how a lot of people recognize you is, right. you know, your presence uh, at uh, the recycling center. Yeah. But uh, how did how did that all begin? Well, it's actually exactly thirty years ago that it began, and. Uh, the recycling that was taking place on Pender back then was um, a little shed next to the Driftwood Center where the overflow parking used to be. Now we have that nice new entry and exit driveway thing there by when you go into the post office. That's where the recycling was. You know, it was like a 10 by 10 shed and it was run by the, the Lions Club who would collect glass and newspapers and tin cans you know, on Saturday mornings and they would crush all the glass by hand, and then the Capital Regional District would send a truck over every now and again and load the barrels and the bundles of newspapers and the tin cans onto a truck and take them to Victoria. So that was the extent of the recycling that was happening back then. Uh, of course, it was all on a volunteer basis by the, the Lions Club members. And then um, a proposal was put forward in late 1988, that Pender really needed a garbage transfer station. And people went, oh, really? We didn't know there was a problem. Um, we had a good garbage pickup service um, that was run by John Spaulding. And he didn't say that he wanted to give that up. And so we asked some questions and there was no provisions for recycling in this waste transfer facility, at least not initially. You know, maybe down the road they would have been. But... And um, the most appalling thing was that it was going to be funded by, you know, through your property taxes, uh, which a bunch of us who got together then thought that was kind of very backwards thinking because... You may have a very valuable house and pay a lot of money for this service, and but you may only have a couple of bags of garbage a year, and somebody in a low-value property could be the opposite. You know, it was not related in any way to the amount of garbage you produced or generated. So we just essentially disagreed with the capital regional district and said well we don't we're not sure that we Pendera needs a waste transfer station and we we have ideas of you know we can do it better we can keep the local garbage collector in business for one thing and maybe we can be a little more progressive and expand the recycling end of things on Pender Island so this whole thing went to a referendum in late 88 and it was resoundly defeated i don't remember the numbers it's a long time ago but it was it wasn't a contest at all however the group of people who kind of had gotten together to inform the people of pender island of this what was going on um, we kind of felt now that we really needed to follow up with our ideas about improving the recycling end of things and so to that effect, we, you know, approached the Lions Club and they said, oh, anything you want to do is fine with us. If you want to take it over, be our guests. They weren't at attached at all to <laughs> the job they were doing. So we um, put a proposal together that we presented to the regional district and 
We didn't get a too positive a response initially, but we decided to push ahead anyways, and we were actually very lucky to locate a property where we could, you know, locate a recycling facility very quickly because we approached Max and June Allen, and they had a little chunk of land that wasn't being used and said, you can have it for a dollar a year if you want, you know, so which gave us a huge boost. And then with some local fundraising, we were able to, and a lot of volunteer work, we were able to start building the first building at the recycling center that is still in use today. We're still in the same location. And over the last 30 years, it's grown exponentially, you know, it's a whole totally different operation than it was back in 1989. September 1989, we actually opened the facility to the public. Yeah, so that's sort of a brief history of the recycling. And I should add that since then, you know, very quickly, actually, the Capital Regional District realized that they were dealing with people who were serious about recycling and serious about doing a good job and intending to do it for the long run and they became actually very supportive and we've had a great working relationship with the capital regional district ever since okay excellent you know it's interesting for people who do live on the island everybody has a relationship with the recycling center if you live on the island you go to the recycling center and that you know it very well but for people listening to this right now who don't live on the island it's actually something that I never really identified in my mind as a local hub, but it is. It's a place where everybody goes. The initial people who were involved with you in getting the recycling centers started, uh, who were they? Well, there was a whole list of people. We had our first meeting at Browning Pub <laughs> where everybody put $5 on the table to take out an advertisement to convince people to turn down the referendum. Um, well, Dan Charman was one of them. Uh, Elizabeth Campbell was one of the driving forces. Um, they're still both around. I think Neville Avison was in the first group. Uh, a lot of people, and a lot of them have have moved on, and a few of them are still here. But um, yeah, it was a, a very dedicated group that started it for sure. And this dedication came out of not wanting to have a waste transfer station on yeah, the Yeah, to feel that we needed to look at waste in a different way, you know, that it's, okay, this is, we're producing this, we need to recycle as much as possible, we need to reduce, we need to reuse, and it's always been kind of, you know, it's very easy to focus on the third R, which is recycle and forget the reduce and reuse, which are the first two R's, and, you know, when you go to recycle depot in town you know you see very very little of that so the gulf islands are still able to hang on to those those values more so than most places and so that's why we have the free store and the reuse store you know and the dish shed where you can loan dishes uh, you know we still really try and focus on on those aspects of the the whole operation and the staff over the years have all been very, very dedicated people. And they're not dedicated because they love crushing cans or, you know, or bailing some cardboard. 
they're in there for different reasons. They're in there because they want to make a difference in the world and reducing our the amount of garbage we generate and reusing things that still have some life left them is a big is a big part of that and that's why we continue to try and promote that and facilitate that. What sort of major changes do you think you've seen at the recycling center over the last 30 years that, you know, I'm sure you've seen a ton, but, you know, in terms of trends of things coming in and out of recycling or other changes that you've seen over the years, is there anything that you can sort of point to as big changes over the last 30 years? Well, the obvious change is that the island has grown a lot in the last 30 years and so that more people and when you go up there now, there's not just one building, there's several buildings and depending on when you arrive there it's hard to find parking and all those things that go with with growing you know over the years there have been some major changes there've been changes to the program you know that we are able to collect materials that markets for materials have come up you know like we can now collect styrofoam and things like that you know that we never thought it would be possible 30 years ago. You know, it was, you know, more the basic sort of materials, paper, tin, and glass that we were focusing on in the early years. Of course, a few years ago, the province changed the, the recycling regulation for all of BC, and it was given over to um, a nonprofit industry organization, and that created a lot of upheaval in the province and not all of it good because a lot of places didn't get the same funding that they used to get through the regional district, uh, including Pender. And so we've been struggling and are still struggling with that to this day. But again, because we have such a good working relationship with the regional district, the monetary shortfall from this transition um, is covered by the regional district and hopefully they will continue to see the value in what we do and continue the support they give us so that's probably that was probably the single biggest change in the last 30 years you know um, yeah a recent one though too right? fairly recent yeah i can't yeah. remember the, it's probably only been in the last five years or so six years yeah yeah. Something else that I just thought to maybe wrap up this recycling section, though, is that what sort of changes have happened in your own life since being involved with recycling for 30 years? What's, what sort of alterations do you think that have taken place in your life that you would directly attribute to the experience of being involved with recycling so intimately for so long? Well, it's, you know, when we started this, nobody kind of started thought that well especially for me because I'm the one who's still with the organization you know I didn't ever dream I would be doing this for the rest of my life almost <laughs> um so but it's been a very rewarding experience you know I got to get a know a lot of people on the island and work with all sorts of different people you know the customers but also obviously you know there's been a lot of stuff that I've and directors of the society that I've dealt with over the last 30 years. And those things have been very rewarding. You know, as I said, all the staff, you know, it, we do it because we believe in what we're doing. And so it's, it's, it may not appear as very glamorous work, but it's meaningful. So, yeah, I, you know, and then as I mentioned earlier, you know, as the recycling grew, 
it demanded more and more of my time because I was the first manager of the depot. You know, we ran it, I think, for three or four months on just volunteer on a just volunteer basis and then realized that that wasn't sustainable so we actually put it out for a tender for somebody to run the depot as a contractor and nobody applied except myself mm-hmm. and so I, that's how i got the job you got the job yeah <laughs> By default um <laughs> so so it changed my life, you know. I mean, I then sort of left the construction behind me because I, you know, I was spending a lot of time doing the recycling. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I also know that uh, you're involved in uh, solar technology as well, too. And that probably, I would imagine, was related to being involved in recycling. Or no. Or was well, it? Well, yeah, you know, it's kind of... In a way, it's in the same field, sure. you know, that it's something to do with the environment and trying to change and do things in a better way. So, yes, I actually stepped down from the manager's position at the recycling depot a few years ago and handed it over to Richard Philpot at the time. And so it, you know, gave me an opportunity, a little space to to think about other things and you know there had been a lot of talk on the island about alternative energy and we need to do this and we need to do that and we kept talking and talking and talking and never anything happened you know we just kept talking about it and so then um back in 2015 i think it was 2014-15 i just approached a few friends and other people I knew on the island who I thought might be interested um, to actually do something about alternative energy. So we formed a little informal group called PSI 2020, Pender Solar Initiative 2020. And our mandate was and still is to cover all suitable public buildings on Pender Island with a photovoltaic array so that they could be either wholly or partially powered by solar energy. And we did it. We started doing it, and the first installation was at the recycling depot, because I had a bit of an in there. And um, it's also just more like a warehouse, so it was a simpler installation. You know, we were not too concerned about aesthetics or where to run the wires and penetrating the roof and things, you know, so, and we had good support again, you know, for fundraising and we just were able to do it. And so that was installation number one. And it enables, because the recycling depot is basically just a part-time industrial endeavor, you know, the, the power consumption is actually relatively small. So they actually have been since 2015 running entirely on solar energy. Wow. Um, because it's a, it's a, what's called a grid tie installation. So we feed into the grid when the sun is shining and we produce more than we need. And then on cloudy days, we import uh, from the grid. But overall, we generate 
much more at the recycling depot than we use over the course of the year. So that's why I'm able to say it's gener- you know, it's run on solar power because we are in that situation. Yeah. And since then, we've um, done the next project was the school, which was a very big project, not only from the size of the installation, which like recycling has 39 panels. The school has, I think, 105 or something. But also because we were dealing with a, a big bureaucracy, um, so there were some challenges there, although everybody was super supportive. A lot of fundraising, also, you know, some more community-level fundraising. The, you know, the Parent Advisory com- Committee did a huge fundraiser for the solar panels and individual people-sponsored panels and and then some bigger grants um, through the Capital Regional District and some off-island foundation and uh, a carbon offset company. So that was installation number two. Number three was... The library, number four was the community hall, and number five is just being finished, and that's the the medical clinic. Okay, and so are, are those all the ones that you're going for when you do the well, medical Well, we'll probably do maybe one or two more because it's now really coming down to the suitability aspect of it because a lot of buildings on Pendera, you know, have not good exposure because mainly because of tree trees you know so love those trees but they block the sun yeah they do you know so yeah but yeah that's been a fun fun project and um again you know very well supported and and hopefully you know it makes a difference um for some especially for organizations like the hall and uh, the library you know it i think it'll be very helpful in their overall budget to uh, pay a lot less for hydro they won't be able to cover all their hydro f- through the solar but a good portion of it and the clinic and the, and um, the school it's a much smaller percentage of the hydro that we can you know offset through the solar panels because they're big they're big consumers <laughs> well it's a big place it's a big yes, building but it is indeed you know i love that you had a date set within the name of the initiative that you guys had and uh and then it seems you've accomplished what it is well, you set out to do we're on track you're on track okay we Once wanted that you know to give us something to aim for and yeah yeah here we are 2019 and maybe just another project or two left and then we can quietly disappear in the woodworks again we've had two meetings since 2015 to pull this off wow you guys we do everything over email and occasional phone calls all of the people involved do not like going to meetings not much stuff gets done at meetings usually it seems like just well it's an interesting (laughs) phenomenon which we could talk more about but well i like talking that's what we're doing right now talking's fantastic but getting things done is even better but uh anyway i really i like the idea you had a date set in there and and it looks like you're going to hit that mark do you you also have the solar panels on your house is that correct well yes not on my house but on my property i have a freestanding array because my house also has too much tree coverage on the roof so i placed it above the garden where i get much better <clears throat> exposure to the sun than anywhere else on the property so right so that's another way you can do it is just have it freestanding separate from your house okay right uh, above your gar- sorry go ahead right above the garden yes and again we're fairly low energy consumers in the house because of 
our approach to things. You know, we, we we're very conscious about using less if possible. So we generate more than we use over the course of the year. And um, so we bought an electric car two years ago and we can cover that charging the car by um, taking power out of the grid from our surplus. Wow, really? Right on. So you're charging your car with a surplus? Well, indirectly, you know, again, it goes into the grid. But yeah, if it was a full sunny day, the the power literally would go from the solar panels through the wires into the car. But usually I charge my car at night, so I'm actually getting it out of the grid, but I fed in during the day, so... Yeah, no, that's that's actually really amazing. So how many panels do you have at your house? We have 30 panels, and so it's a 7.5 kilowatt installation. And so it generates, um, last year was our best year, 2018. We generated 7,400 kilowatt hours on a mediocre location. It's not the best, you know, five or six hours of sunshine in the summer, much less right now early January or late January. Sure. That sun Um, is low. Yeah. So, but it works, you know, spread over the year. And so, yeah, we're very happy with that investment and, you know, someday it'll pay back. But again, that's not our primary goal. You know, the primary goal is to try and do the right thing. Right on. And you say that the solar panels are just uh, above the garden, and uh, I think I've seen you in that garden a couple times. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Especially in the spring and early summer, you definitely see me in the garden. Yeah, we Quite. try and grow most of our food in the garden. So we're very busy. Yeah. Well, yeah. what do you have grown in there, and uh, where did this passion for gardening develop? Well, my wife Mary has always been the main gardener in the family, and I'm sort of a late arrival to the the gardening scene i've you know i've sort of played around with it occasionally but not that seriously um and then when we got this acreage and we had the space we you know put in a huge garden so yeah we we grow you name it we probably grow it you know a lot of things um, beans peas tomatoes you know squashes um garlic asparagus then we have fruit trees, apples, pears, plums, cherries, figs. So, yeah, we do quite well with it, you know, and buy very little fresh produce, you know. Sort of late late winter, early spring is when we tend to run out sometimes on things. And I think we're almost out of onions now. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's a lot of work, but it's good food. Yeah. Growing your own food is amazing. Yeah, you can't, you know, once you've grown your own, some of the things are more obvious or the the difference between the store-bought and the homegrown is huge, right? Tomatoes and carrots come to mind. We don't even buy tomatoes in the store. After you've had some, like, homegrown tomatoes, what's the point? Wait, you know, we get tomatoes from maybe, if we're lucky, in July to November sometimes, and that's it. Then we wait till July for the next crop and mm-hmm. we don't eat tomatoes just like it used to be yeah. yeah yeah well that's it you know we we even have a little winter garden so right now we're eating leeks and kohlrabi and turnips and rutabagas and carrots are still in the ground so you know we kind of switch our diet around to suit the season and so we don't have to buy you know 
too much from California and other places. Yeah. Nice. So other than growing their own, your own food and consuming your own food, what is it about gardening that really can you put towards how it makes you feel doing that? Well, you're just very close to nature and you get your hands dirty and it just feels like you're really connected to where you live. You know, it's like, okay, we can do this here. You know, we, we're blessed to have this beautiful climate. We're very fortunate to be able to have this parcel of land. And so we're trying to make the best of it, you know, for as long as our bodies hold up. And um, it's just very, a very nurturing kind of experience. So it feeds more than just the, the tummy, you know, it feeds the, the spirit as well. And I know Mary grows a lot of flowers and she loves her flowers. And I used to be like, but we can't eat them. <laughs> uh, well, I've come around, you know, I can, I do appreciate the beauty of flowers and other blooming things. And, and so they feed the other half of us, you know, there's the food, the body that needs the nourishing, but then there's also the spirit and everything else that needs nourishing and flowers help with that. Yeah, definitely. For sure. And sunshine and listening to the birds and all of that, that you get to enjoy when, while you're working in the garden. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's nice to hear somebody put some words to that because I grew up in a suburb in Burnaby and, you know, even in my twenties, I had no experience in a garden or being on farms at all. It was completely foreign to me. And it's nice to hear people speaking of their feelings and their passions about being in those environments and what it means to them. And, uh, perhaps it would inspire people to, uh, draw that out within themselves who don't have that experience, but yeah. And you can do it on a much smaller scale, of course, too. You know, you can just have a few pots on the deck or, on the balcony and grow some beautiful tomatoes or something. And um, I think one of the issues these days are, is this big disconnect, you know. But like, as you say, you grow up in Burnaby and you're not exposed to farming or gardening per se. And I mean, I'm told some kids don't even know where food comes from. You know, it comes out of the supermarket, you know, and that's as far as their understanding goes. So, and I think that's a, it's somewhat dangerous, that kind of trend, you know, because I think it's what keeps us alive. You know, it's really important to feed yourself well and maybe know where the food comes from. And, you know, we have industrial farming these days and then the news comes and have some outbreak of some disease and well it's not surprising because it's a factory it's not it's not nature anymore that's looking after things and keeping things in balance you know so definitely and i, I think eating as well too has become a bit of a mindless activity and i guess i'm just speaking for myself but i know that when i'm eating food that's from the grocery store I actually do say a little bit of a prayer about it and have some consciousness, but 
it's so different from food that you grow yourself, which I don't grow very much. But when I do grow the food, boy, do I have an appreciation for yeah. it. And I feel way more conscious and connected before I put that in my mouth because I understand the value of the work and the relative passion that went into doing that. And uh, it's a really nice feeling to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so for yourself to grow the amount of food that you do, you probably are having that feeling most meals that you're having in your, in well, your life. I guess we probably get also complacent, you know, because we're so, so used to growing everything ourselves. Now we tend to sometimes also forget, Oh, wait a minute. You know, this is not just food. This is, the fruit of our labors you know so yeah it's we get complacent very quickly so we can all work on that (laughs) i think it's a human trait i think complacency is definitely a human trait um just getting back to something you mentioned earlier and i I think it's something that you want to talk about is the uh, the building of your house just uh want to hear what uh what your thoughts are and uh maybe take us through the process of uh, building a house on pender yeah well, I built two houses. The two. first one was um, when I came in back in 86. And it was a pretty regular kind of house, a stick frame house and um, that, I held, that I built mostly myself. I had help from my dad a couple of times and some friends, but mostly myself. And But, you know, again, it was, um, wasn't really what I was... Well, we loved the house. It was a nice house, and it served us well for many years. But I felt there was something else I wanted to do. And um, so the second house we started building in the year 2004, I believe. And um, I didn't want to build another stick frame house. I wanted to build something that was healthier and more in line with our beliefs so we decided to build a straw bale house, a combination straw bale cob house on our property on Pirates Road. And so we just did that for the next six and a half years. Wow, six and a half years. <laughs> yes, it was a pretty crazy design. There's lots of round walls and curved ceilings and you know everything that makes house difficult to build we we did it <laughs> um probably because we didn't know what we were getting into but it was a fascinating process we actually had a workshop very well first it's it's a, it's a post and beam structure so nothing revolutionary about that been built for many hundreds of years um around the world um so we did that and then we got some straw delivered from Vancouver Island and then we had a workshop with a bunch of people who came from all over the country who wanted to learn about straw bale and cob building and Tracy Calvert who who still lives on the island here was uh, the teacher and mentor and she saw us through the whole project even way beyond the um, the workshop so we had this great workshop with, there was 10 people there and we hired Matilda to be the camp cook. And these people just like started raising our walls, you know, with the cob and the straw bales. And we had a such a good time together. It was very intense, especially for the general contractor, which was Mary and I. 
because we had to think about everything, right? Because you have to put the, the electrical wires into the walls and the plumbing into the walls as it goes up, you know, and then you're running all over the place. Oh, are we putting a window in over here? Yes, 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 yes. And so it was very intense, but extremely rewarding. It was such a nice bunch of people and they all camped on the property. We all had meals together and it was an amazing experience. And um, so that gave us a real boost. You know, we got like three quarters of the walls done and then we finished them off with Tracy's help and then we hired a crew to plaster and, you know, so it was, and we had a lot of volunteers from Pender who wanted to get their hands into some mud and throw it on at our walls. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, but it was slow, you know, we were still working part-time, both of us. So we had to, you know, sometimes go away and make some money and, but we did it in the end. We we completed it and moved in, and we love every minute of being in the house. It's it's very warm and cozy, and everything. The walls are all rounded and natural paint on the inside, and clay plaster on the outside, and, and it blends in pretty nicely into the forest. And you know, when we're gone one day. Maybe it'll crumble back to the ground and there will be relatively very little plastic left over. You know, most of it is the rock foundation. The rocks came from the property, all the posts and beams and a lot of the interior lumber, the wood I used for building the windows, they all come, came off the property. Wow. A lot of the mud for the walls came off the property. The straw bales came from Vancouver Island. So a lot of that stuff can just return to the earth if, when the time comes. You know, it's again about, you know, having as small a footprint as possible. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, when I asked the question earlier about the changes that have occurred in your life since you joined recycling, it sounds that there's a, a number of things through the gardening and through having this house and through the solar panels. It seems as if there's a lot of choices that you've made in your life right. to reduce your footprint yeah. on the world. Yeah, there's a bit of a theme there, I guess. I think there's yeah. a theme there. Yeah, but we're also vegetarian, which is uh, thanks to my daughter, Nadia. She was at the Pender School here in grade six and heard a presentation about the footprint of people around the globe. There was this project somebody did where they asked people to take all their possessions out into their front yard. And so there was people in Burma or somewhere. Well, they had one table and two plates and a little altar and some candles and a little bit of bedding, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then on the other extreme, you can imagine where I'm going with this, is North America. Jeez, it would take a couple of days to clean your house. People have to up. use their neighbor's yard to get <laughs> to fit everything. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. And so they had this presentation at the school, and and what can we do about our footprint? Because our footprint is not sustainable. And one of the things that was presented was becoming vegetarian because you know growing meat is a huge impact on the on the planet and so my grade six daughter came home and said 
I'm a vegetarian now. Did she want you to take everything out of the house as well, too? Or no, perfect, no, good. Okay, go, she all right. Didn't want to give up her comfy bed. But <laughs> it was a big step, you know. And then the kudos to her. Yeah, that's a young age to make that yes. decision for and, sure. And um, so one after the other, we all basically joined her in that. So how many years has it been? Twenty years ago, or something. Yeah, something like that. I know. How old are kids in grade six? Uh, 12? 12. 12. Okay, so she's 31 now. Hey, 19 years. Okay, 19 years. <laughs> All right. Wow. Okay, I was yeah. I was a vegetarian for uh, 11 years, and then I ate uh, fish for the last three, okay. making it 14. We fish, too. We ate fish. Yeah. It's pescatarian, I think yeah. uh, they're right. called. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, in terms of taking out meat out of your diet, did, did you notice a change within... Not like physically, really. it was just basically about... Less, it was a less very food. smooth transition. I mean, we obviously looked into it a little bit. So we have protein and, you know, enough protein in our diet. And actually, we grow drying beans in our garden, which I forgot to mention, which is protein, right? So we can grow our own protein in the garden, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. We obviously supplement it with fish sometimes or soy tofu and things like that but no don't miss it at all okay yeah all right well uh just looking at the time here and i want to uh, lead into the second traditional question okay. i always ask do you know what this question is i should because i listened to one of your podcasts but i, I forgot <laughs> that's okay the second traditional question i ask is uh, who has helped you along the way on pender island oh <laughs> so many people you know, I mean, it started right at the beginning, you know, like day one, you know, you know how Pender is, right? And people are very friendly and helpful and it's, um, it's never stopped, you know, to this day, to this today, a neighbor came over and helped me take a dangerous tree down that was left from December 20th windstorm. It was hung up, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing it myself. Oh yeah, I'll come over. When? Oh, right now. You know, that kind of approach. And so that's just been a theme right from day one to the present. And if I had to list all the names, you know, we would be here for hours well, we wouldn't because I can't, my memory is not good enough to, to remember all the many, many people. Yeah. You know, apart, I mean, obviously my family, but, you know, I'm talking about the community now, you know, the help in the community. And we've had some health issues, you know, in the last few years. And that's when Panda really shines, you know, the support you get when when things go a little haywire with health and all of a sudden your freezer is full of meals you know that's why we live here right because of that sense of community and people looking out for each other and caring for each other and so we try and give back as much as possible but over the course of the many years we received a lot more than we could possibly give you know so yeah. You know, it's such a common thing for people to come in and say that there's just too many people to mention. It's just been getting help the whole time I've been here. And it's actually been 
such a lovely part of doing this is to hear that over and over again. Cause I actually didn't really know that until I started asking people that question and mm. heard the uh, response to that. But as, as well too, I noticed that a lot of people are tentative to mention particular people because they feel they'd be leaving some people out. But I really think it's interesting to see some of the connections that exist on the island between individuals that we may not know about because uh, we know that families are connected. But I find it very interesting to hear connections that people have that I didn't know that they were close because of some assistance that was given or due to a working relationship or what have you. But if there's anybody that you're like, oh, yeah, this person was definitely, you know, instrumental if you feel comfortable or not. But I think it's such an interesting part. And um, if you if you don't feel comfortable singling somebody out, that's okay. Yeah, it's the, the hesitancy comes from there being so many and, you know, everybody gives to their ability and their potential. And, you know, naming people almost seems like, being raising them above the others you know so that's that's why i'm hesitant um yeah i think i'll just leave it at that okay that Sorry. sounds that's no yeah. no problem totally yeah. fine that's totally fine for sure yeah. well because you mentioned about uh growing up in germany do you want to talk about growing up in germany a little bit well sure Good. i mean i grew up in germany i was born in 56 so not too long after the second world war and Growing up in Germany was a little strange, especially in retrospect, because we never learned anything. Like, history stopped around 1900. Well, really? Because nobody was ready and able to talk about the two wars, I think, because it was the generation who essentially participated in it. You know, it was just too difficult to turn around and teach the kids about it. I mean, obviously it's changed now, but when I went to school, we it was never mentioned at all, you know. So I kind of had to play catch-up in my later years by reading about that part of Germans, Germany's history. And, and then, you know, my dad was obviously, he was in World War Two. you know. He was part of the, the Nazi... Um, regime on a very low level, but um, he, well, he was forced, you know, he was at the wrong place in the wrong time, you know, and he didn't really have an option. My mother, interestingly, is from Scotland, and so she, she was actually also, she was in the British Air Force. So they were on opposite sides till they met after the war. And my mother moved to Germany and raised her family there, and which must have been a very difficult and courageous thing for her to do. Um, so short, you know, like within eight years of the end of the war, she came to Germany, and, you know, there was still a lot of rubble around and demolished buildings and stuff. And, um, well, hold on. I'm, I'm curious. How, how did your parents meet? It was actually through an exchange. My dad actually ended up being a POW in Britain. And he was so impressed with the treatment he received as a prisoner that he thought, wow, these people are so nice in a war situation. They must be unbelievably nice in a, a peaceful you know, environment. Yeah. And so he said he always wanted to go back to Britain after the war. 
And so I guess he had the opportunity in 1952 or 53 to do that through the church he was involved with. And that's how he met my mom, through that exchange. My mom was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and that's where his group was going to. And then, you know, the the Scottish group went to Germany in exchange, and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah, so, but, you know, I think my parents having gone through that experience against their wills um, really spent probably the rest of their lives making up for having had to participate in World War Two, and by promoting peace and making connections and supporting projects around the world, you know. And that's probably, you know, peace and environment, they're all sort of very closely linked, and that's probably where I got my, you know, where my path started, you know, and I actually became a conscientious objector um, because there was still the draft when I was growing up in Germany and um, I refused to be drafted and and my parents fully supported me in that. Um, So, you know, it's, 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 um, it's always very humbling to look back at these steps you know as a kid you don't even think about it you just go through life kind of with blinders on almost but you know it's not till many years later probably starts when you have your own kids i don't know (laughs) that you reflect back and see how these things all kind of fit together like a puzzle almost yeah so those were my so I grew up in in West Germany went to school high school and then when I this whole conscientious objector thing is a, another whole story in itself but I went I started going through the proper process but basically got stymied and harassed by the German army and Berlin at the time was still under the control of the four powers, U.S., Britain, France, and Russia. So Berlin was divided up between the four powers, and the German army army was not allowed to set foot into Berlin. So myself and a friend of mine, after we've put up with harassment for too many months, we moved to Berlin and basically escaped the draft by moving to Berlin. Uh, so I lived in Berlin for about two and a half, three years. And then I booked myself a one-way ticket and over a rather circuitous route arrived in Canada because I met my first wife in Australia and we married there and then came to Canada. And... I knew enough about Canada that I didn't want to go to Lethbridge, where she was from. And so we settled in Sydney, outside of Victoria, and then we made the move back in 86 to Pender Island. So that's it. 
in a snapshot. <laughs> well, I feel it's interesting. We're we're totally nearing the end of the uh, the hour long time. I like to stay within, but uh, I felt as if there was uh, ten hours at least of uh, stories that could have been uh, told from the time of you being a young boy to get into. Sydney. Yeah, lots of stories, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, is there anything else that uh, you want to uh, say and end off with as the uh, the last word on this podcast here, Andy? Well, it's just, um, you know, I've said this, I think, probably once or twice in public meetings before. I, I, I really feel blessed to be living on this island. I think it's, you know, I think it's a very special place. And... I hope it stays this way, you know, that we can find the, the balances we need to, to thrive as a community. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a special place for sure. Right on. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming in. That was really well, great. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Uh, keep on the good work. All right. Well, to honor that interview, I decided I'd make my way down to Thieves Bay. So Thieves Bay is located on the North Island and it is a marina and there is a breakwater protecting the boats and along the breakwater are some picnic tables and it is a very popular place for locals and tourists alike to come gather and to soak up some sun. So in reference to what Andy was saying about solar panels and placing them on appropriate places. I think this is a spot where a lot of people come to charge their own personal solar panels and uh, get some sunshine. And today is a wonderful example of that. It's the day after a first snowfall of 2019, and it is a sunny day. And I'm here looking out towards Salt Spring Island, looking towards the northeast right now. I see one of the BC ferries going by. This is a really beautiful place to uh, catch some sunshine. And not only is it a great place for that, but people also come here because this is a wonderful whale watching spot as well, too, where you'll have regular appearances of orca whales going by. And that's another reason why people come out here. So I want to thank Andy so much for doing this podcast with me and sharing some wonderful stories in it. Thank you very much, Andy. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Ptarmigan for their support that they put into this and until next time.